who who are you? Who is Paul? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very open question. Um, I'm sure intentionally. <laughs> I guess I I have um, been trying to. Uh, I'm trying to think about like where to derive my motivation and how to kind of envisage myself and my role in the world, my context in the world. Um, which is ultimately a, you know, which is kind of a spiritual type of reflection. Um, I, I'm not meaning to use, use that word in, in any, any particularly, uh, loaded way. Um, just, uh, you know, it's kind of your relationship with, with, with your conscious being self, <laughs> uh, you know, like your soul and like, what, 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 what am, what am I in this world? And I kind of have settled on, um, uh, right. I kind of not just settled, but like realized that, uh, a love for life, uh, life itself, not, not my life, but life, uh, kind of the phenomenon um, and, and living things is kind of the, the most satisfying thing to me as a motivator. Um, and uh, um, I've been trying to think about how I can derive, how I can base my choices on, you know, some kind of um, heuristic that boils down to a guiding force uh, that is love for living things and, and love for life. Um, and then of course the, the question, what is love comes, which I think, we, you know, we can kind of intuitively know that sometimes. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, something to do with like encouraging the, you know, genuinely, uh, encouraging the flourishing of that thing. Um, something like that. You know, so, so, so really wanting flourishing of life, I think, is, is what I've kind of identified as what I want to spiritually guide me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've been tr trying to figure out how to implement that in general. And um, so I, I, I'd like to say that that is at the core of who I am, um, which is kind of a work in progress. Um, but that's, that's kind of a goal. Uh, aside from that, I'm, well, I'm, I'm very interested in life, animals, what life is, um, and how we can, um, how we can take care of life and make life healthy, which has kind of led me now. I mean, that led me down a path of biology, studying biology, um, and has now led me to really feel motivated to devote my efforts to um, trying to address uh, trying to address the the way that human life has developed uh, in a way that is no longer really in sync with other forms of life uh, on the planet. I think that hopefully is an equilibrium we can restore or an equilibrium, but kind of a homeostasis that we can restore. And right now we're like really out of, 
really out of out of whack with that. And so it's like it's a kind of poor health that is happening on this living planet. When I say living planet, I don't mean, I don't mean woo woo. I just mean like this planet full of life. Um, and so that like kind of restoring a healthy state and a homeostasis seems like something that I am really motivated to do now. And so I've been trying to think about how I can do that, um, which is, which has kind of been a bit of a self-reckoning because it's like, you know, for a while I was like, okay, I'm going to build tools for biology. Um, biology is really cool. Um, and then eventually I, as I, you know, got to the closer to the end of my PhD and asked myself, what am I going to do next? Really kind of decided I want to try to take on some of these problems head on um, the best as I can. Um, uh, which of course is a, is a community effort. I mean, I don't mean myself taking on these problems. I just mean like trying to have my sights set on that, do what I can with, with uh, my community and, and kind of make that my goal. Um, yeah, that's kind of, I guess how I'm, how, how I would answer the question right now of, 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 of who I am and what I'm about. There's a lot there. Um, in a sense, it's like you align with like the goal of life, but in a psychological way, which is like life is the opposite of entropy and the flourishing of life is the flourishing of like anti-entropy in a sense. So you are an agent just like consciously of that or like that's what's drawing you. And there's like a weird sort of like synergy with just like, yeah, so that, that's interesting. Um, another way to look at it, or I don't know, something that I was reminded of is like Bezos, Jeff Bezos, his mission may seem antithetical to this, given that like Amazon probably isn't exactly carbon neutral. Yet his mission with Blue Origin or his vision for it is that we start to see Earth as like the non-industrial zone and all heavy industry moves into outer space. And, you know, we're going to have colonies and hopefully eventually trillions of people in the solar system. But everybody's going to live in outer space and earth is going to be reserved as this kind of like the prime space where nature is allowed to flourish again without us interfering. Um, like, do you align with that vision then? What? Does that <laughs> seem crazy? That's his vision. So the, uh, yeah, so I, I, I wish I had, I wish I was more familiar with that going in. I didn't, I didn't realize. So, so the, uh, just to reiterate, to make sure I understand the yeah. idea is that, um, like an ideal future would be earth is kind of a nature reserve in a way. Yeah. And um, human activities are take place in outer space. And on earth, but just like, you know, the ones that we do on earth aren't like logging and mines and like carbon dioxide and yeah, stuff. We're, we're not using earth as much as a natural resource. Yeah. Uh, uh, as we call it where it's yeah. And then what about the humans who live in space? Like what kind of conditions do they live in? Slavery. <laughs> or like, do, I mean, do they live in like, you know, metal rooms? Uh, no. He's envisioning like, you know, giant, well, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways to do this, but like you can imagine a giant cylinder that is rotating. So it creates artificial gravity on the yeah. inside and you grow stuff there as well. Like it right. replicates, you know, it's sunny, it spins in a way that allows you to have similar cycles. Right. And you kind of have ecosystems in there. Yeah. Right. And so you, you have ecosystems in there and then why, and then, yeah, 
Sure. I mean, that, 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 that sounds fine to me. As long as, as long as humans can be like living in a rich ecosystem with other living things, hmm. um, then that, that seems, that seems nice to me. I mean, that, obviously that's a very futuristic vision. Yeah. Um, Potentially contentious question, and I think we might disagree on this. So let me see. Uh, there's the smile. <laughs> uh, so, is human life more or less valuable than the life of any other given species on Earth? Um, I think that's a, a bit hard to answer because of the ecological nature of life. Um, because we kind of all exist together. Um, I am tempted to say that, you know, um, an aspect of the, of the human condition, like our ability to um, engage in intellectual, um, you know, the, the, the quality, the, the, the primary quality that sets us apart, which is our intellectualism. Um, I, I do think that that is a very precious thing that seems to be unique to humans. And so I would say that that is a very important thing. Um, but I don't necessarily want to say it's more important or more valuable than other parts of the ecosystem in which it exists. Uh, even though it may be tempting, there's this joke, uh, George Carlin has this joke where he says, it's something like, uh, uh, I, I was thinking that my brain is the most important part of my body. But then I asked myself, wait, who's telling me this? <laughs> um, so I, I guess I, I, I hesitate to Without, without really understanding how life works, um, I hesitate to really say something about how our intellectual capacity is somehow better or more valuable. Um, I could give you a concrete reason. Yeah, tell me. Okay. Um, if any one species had the ability to back up the entire ecosystem and have it survive longer than it otherwise would. So, you know, our sun will probably explode in a billion years and the whole ecosystem will be gone. If yeah. one species had the power to back up the entire thing and bring it somewhere else and have it exist longer, uh, would that not be in a sense, the most existentially important species of all? I, I see what you mean. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the way you framed that, the answer is yes. Um, but I, I guess uh, I'm not sure why we have to, why it's so important to compare species. Okay. So which species is more important? Yeah. And then, you know, what, whatever follows from that answer, it's like, those are going to be the kings or something. Right. So, yeah, not necessarily in the agenda of saying, okay, therefore we shouldn't care about our forest because right now the current state that we're in is that we depend on our ecosystem. Even if we are the most special important things, we shouldn't shoot ourselves in the foot either. We should still protect it because we depend on it. Um, but I think it, it has implications for like 
the way we the way we view it and like certain micro decisions that we make along the way. So like yeah. seeing humans as still being the most rare and interesting and like potentially valuable of the species means that like, we're just clear about where we stand in relation to it. Um, and then one other argument I guess would be, you know, there's probably billions of solar systems out there with life on it. And there are likely hundreds of millions that have evolved bacterial life and tens of millions that have evolved plant life. And then millions that have evolved multicellular, you know, uh, quadrupeds and stuff. And yeah. probably only like a fraction of a percent that have evolved human life or sorry, civilizational capability. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The kind of intellectual capabilities are- we're, we're way more rare. Like, and life on other planets is impacted randomly by super volcanoes or meteorites and stuff. So you could kind of see our flourishing right now as kind of like, it is a bit of a cost on the current ecosystem, but compared to other arbitrary costs, at least we're also eventually going to be its steward in a more meaningful way once we get our shit together, like once we do evolve to be more sophisticated. So it's almost like the period we're going through right now, it's like, sorry, Earth, we obviously care about you and we love you and we think you're beautiful, but right now it's important to allow us to economically thrive to get to a point of sophistication. And then we can come back and be kind of like a steward and still protect you kind of thing. Does that jive or is that like- That, so that, that smacks of an attitude that I don't like. <laughs> um, first of all, I, I think it's very natural to humans to self-preserve. Um, I would wager, I don't know if this is true, but I would wager that any species would self-preserve its own species over other species. Um, so that instinct is probably in a, I mean, I don't know if that's true, but it just, it seems to make sense. Um, so I, I, I feel like that instinct is in us already. Um, and I, I don't think it's, I, I, I find it to be in poor taste to, uh, kind of, uh, try to, stake a claim to to just being the best um when the way that the world works is so mysterious um i think i think humility in the face of how wonderful life is and how wonderful the whole ecosystem is is a more appropriate um and becoming attitude, uh, which doesn't mean, you know, uh, putting myself, my own well-being or the well-being of fellow humans on the same well-being that I would level of well-being that I would put like a dandelion or something. Um, I, ha I do have the natural instinct to want to protect the human more than the dandelion. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I just don't feel the need to rub it in. In fact, I, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think, I, I think pushing it a little in the other direct, like tempering that, that, that instinct is maybe a little more healthy because the instinct I think is, is toward hubris and uh, doesn't, is maybe just like a little, a little unwarranted, even if in the end, after tempering it, we, we, we still have this, self-preservation we kind of like hang together and prioritize ourselves uh and and so 
I, I do agree with you that, um, you know, it is a good goal to have humans be economically successful where economically is more just, you know, separating the term economics from the way that it is used to describe like a closed ecosystem of, of, of like human industry or something. Um, Having humans be, you know, in basically, so the way I would think of it is having humans be generative of new forms of life. Mm. Um, So I, I kind of view like the, what we've created as a new form of life, a new kind of ecosystem that we, you know, that, that kind of coexists with us and with the rest of the world now uh, that we exist within. Um, So, yeah, I do think it's great to have humans kind of uh, continue to produce this, this new kind of life and to extend that into the, into the universe. I think that's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I don't think it is, good to prioritize that on a time scale that says, okay, well, sorry, earth, like we need to, we need to not take care of you that well so that we can do this. Like, I think we could just slow down a bit or something. Um, I'm not saying that's like easy for us to do or in our nature, but in terms of what would seem good, it doesn't seem necessary to me that like within five generations we're in space. It could be a hundred generations. It doesn't matter on the, on the scale of evolution of life. That's still plenty fast. Um, I, I do think keeping the earth safe is a great priority, um, which, you know, we should, as soon as we have the means, we should try to make the, keep the earth as safe as possible. And that is part of this like futuristic vision that you mentioned, um, you invoke Jeff Bezos and like, you know, there are others who, have these thoughts of um you know in the future earth is like a a, an nature conservatory in a way like we're going to treat it like a absolute pearl um and uh and take care of it and keep it safe i think that is good that is a good goal and we should maybe think about that goal more now as we're um as we're trying to be industrious and improve our economy um so, you know, if we genuinely think that getting off the Earth and living on Mars to start with or whatever, living on the moon is a good way for us to um, protect the Earth in the long run, because it gives us, um, you know, it's not putting all our eggs in one basket. And it's actually done with the attitude of like the most important thing here is, is to protect earth. And so we're doing this for the sake of protecting earth. That seems good. But if that was the attitude, I think it would look different. The way that it happens would look different. It would look less self-interested. Yes. Yeah. And it, it's so fun the way that you phrase it, you know, it would be in poor taste to frame ourselves this way. And you're totally right. And like when we, we have continued to take, man out of the you know the people out of the center of our view of the world and like it's probably the right thing to just keep doing that and keep not just pretending we're the center um, yeah it's a very copernican way or sorry very um um uh oh gosh what's the, what's what's the Greek um yeah the ptolemaic uh having earth at the center you know it's 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 a very ptolemaic way of thinking um 
that we've been constantly shedding, like you said, you know, first it was not we're the center of the universe. Then it's not like God favors humanity. Then it's not God favors white people. You know, then it's not, then it's not men. Then it's not, you know, people of a particular uh, gender orientation. Um, And I, I, I really hope that soon we, we recognize that we should change the way that we treat sentient animals um, that we shouldn't treat them as our property. Um, yeah. And then like one thing that you invoked as part of the reasoning there was like in the face of such a grand mystery, right? Like the fact that we should just own up to how little we really kind of know about what's going on, like both at a personal level, fundamentally, like the only thing we technically really know is that our minds exist and that's it. Everything else yeah. is kind of like, we're assuming, you know, and right. then it's, in science as well, like we like to think, you know, we've got nature, we got science and cell and all these like fancy journals and stuff. But like, you know, then we try to piece two and two together in biology, like it's got to work. And then it's just like some completely, some answer that we had no, it just shows how ignorant we really are about the whole thing. Um, I guess like, I don't know, how do you, like, how do you answer for yourself the like absurd state that we're in where like, we desperately want to know and we desperately are looking for answers in, in the world. And yet, you know, when we look at the sky or close our eyelids or like just, you know, try to talk to our inner head or something, we don't get a clear answer. We're just kind of popped into existence here and like go for, you know, like do you, how do you deal with that personally? How do I deal with that? Yeah. Uh, great question. Um, I'll give you a somewhat ideal, I'll give you a, I'll give you a response that's kind of my ideal of how I would deal with it, mm. how I try to deal with it. Yeah. Um, similar to how I was saying, like, you know, my ideal is to have love for life at the, as the guiding principle for my actions. It isn't always, but that's kind of an, you know, an aspiration. Um, so how I try to deal with that confusion um, or maybe you don't think about it a lot. Maybe it's kind of out of your mind at this point. No, it, I do think about it. <laughs> I do think about it. Um, I think, yeah, again, again I'll, I'll go back to some of the same points, which are, um, I, I, I guess, kind of a, a, um, a, a let's see, how should, how should I say this? Um, I try to allow myself to be taken by the wonder, the sense of wonder and the sense of marvel uh, at the the mysterious existence that I find myself in. Um, and and try to try to kind of meditate on that, you know, in a in a, in a loving way, in a, in a way that's like, you know, seeking to see the beauty in it, um, to appreciate it, um, and to, to really internalize the sense of wonder and mystery. And, um, and then to try to do the best I can to try to do what I think is good, you know? And then, you know, there's this question of like, well, what, what does it mean to, for something to be good? And where does that notion come from? Which is a very complicated 
line of inquiry that ultimately is, I think, pretty hard to answer. Um, but you know, for for some reason, I, I guess I guess just because of the staggering, the, the combination of this of the staggering unknowability and confusion of asking about what this is, combined with how wonderful it appears to be. Right. When I say wonderful, I don't mean it's like thoroughly good, like there's suffering and everything. It's it's yin and yang, but um, uh, actually take that out. I don't really know what yin and yang means. Um, how involved it seems to be. It's very sophisticated. And- yeah, yeah. And it's full of bad and good by my judgment, right? Um, so, uh, but, but, it, but it's... It, but it, it, it's 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 really beautiful and impressive. It's very impressive. So um, yeah, I, I guess trying to be humble with it. Okay, it's something that I've found satis- like satisfying. Um, yeah, that feels like the best approach, given that there's like very little else that we can do or that we yeah. should be able to do. It would be really I mean, nice. Also, trying to understand it for fun hmm. and for the purpose of trying to help it be good. Yeah. Um, which are kind of how I think about like science and engineering or like, you know, uh, philosophy and engineering. It would be really nice if science were to like take up that kind of a question. If it could, maybe it's kind of similar to the hard problem of consciousness where it like, doesn't even know where to start. And so like, while we would like to approach it, it's just, we don't even know what tools to use. Um, but that would, to me, I would like my ears would perk up in a different kind of way if we could start to chip at that kind of answer a little bit better. Um, it feels, I don't know, these existential kind of questions, like when they really hit me and I, I don't just say the words, but it like I understand and feel the real actual repercussion of what they mean. It's like we popped into existence and here we are and we have no idea what's going on. Like you, you can just say that, but it's a different thing to like really internalize and feel like the magnitude of how we absurd that is. Um, yeah. and, and so then that kind of leads to the question of what, what do you think happens when you die? Well, I, so if, 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 if you don't mind, I, I yeah. kind of want to make another comment. Yeah. I have this, this so I, I like to say that uh, my spirit animal is plankton. Oh boy. Um, plankton are um, I, the definition of plankton is so I, I, I realized that this was my spirit animal when I read the definition so I used to think that plankton was like a particular type of um, particular type of animal like with a phylum or something with a particular like evolutionary history but no plankton is anything that floats in the water and is moved by the currents because it's too weak to uh direct its own mm. um to, to direct locomotion. its own its own locomotion yeah it, it's too weak to fight the current um and so when i say that i identify with plankton um it's you know, it's a little tongue in cheek because of course, you know, I have agency and I try to make the best decisions I can and do good in the world. And, you know, that's a big part of being a person is really, you know, using the gift of agency that you have to do your best. Um, But at the same time, like you're just born into this bizarre 
thing, your taught words, all the yeah. words we're using, we didn't invent these words. They were given to us all and the meanings associated with them and all the practices and ways of being and the emotions that come when we enter situations. And so, you know, the level of agency that we have over things like that is very small. So um, in that sense, I kind of identify with Plankton. Um, and like, I kind of pound my fist a little bit. Like that's in a sense, part of my response. Part of my response is that awe and just kind of like, that is the response, just a gratitude that I get to exist at all. But part of it too is like this, uh, you know, like pounding my fist against the table, like, damn it. I wish I had more control over the situation. Or I wish I knew more like, I, like badly. Like it's a, it's a core desire of mine to like, escape the situation or like find some it was you know one of the bohemian rhapsody lines like uh or i forget whether it's bohemian rhapsody but like you know it's uh you can't escape reality like it's just like it, yeah i don't know it, it, it kind of ties in but anyway so what um yeah what do you think happens when you die what do i think happens mm -hmm. uh i think probably uh well, in terms of like your consciousness, I think it's your funny. consciousness kind of probably stops. I think that's usually what most people mean yeah. when they ask what happens when you die. They're, they're asking like, does your consciousness go to heaven mm -hmm. or become a ghost or something like that? I don't, I don't, uh, I don't suspect that it does go to heaven or become a ghost. I think likely it just like stops happening. And then your, your body and your brain and everything, all the, all the material and energy and information that are supporting your being, they kind of, they go back and they decompose. Um, they, they become less organized and whatever structures were supporting your being kind of, they go away and the, and the, simp the simpler components become the, the dominant form and then uh, they go into the world and then they participate in other things. Um, I was introduced to an idea recently. So basically what you're saying is an infinity of nothingness to your, like you perceive, an, well, obviously you don't perceive anything. You perceive nothing forever when you die. Uh, I wouldn't quite say you perceive nothing forever because it doesn't mean to say that you perceive anything yeah. at that point. Yeah. There is nothing that you perceive forever. Yeah, you don't exist. You don't exist in, in, in the in the in the in the in the in the typical notion of identity that we use. Yeah, you don't exist anymore. So there's a couple of strings to pull out for this. So one is like when you first understood that, was that like existentially terrifying for you or was it like like more quickly something that you kind of came to terms with and you were just cool with it, like it didn't matter? That's a good question. Funny enough, I don't, I have not really ever found that to be so bothersome. Right. Um, even though I began my life as a Christian. Ooh. And so I, I was raised Christian. And so I, I, um, uh, you lost a lot. You went from an, infinite I lost a lot. Exactly. <laughs> I went, I went from looking forward to, an infinite right. life of blissfully of, you know, blissful uh, fellowship with the Lord. Mary singing. Yeah. 
to um, basically, you know, accepting that I will go away. But I, I guess I, I try to identify with the, the larger ecosystem and the kind of like the larger world, like I'm part of the world, right? And the world is gonna still exist. And the world is the best part. <laughs> so, you know. Um, There's a part of me that can't help but be a little selfish despite that picture of the world, which is nice actually. And it's bringing me a little comfort even now, but like selfishly. I thought about this. <laughs> <laughs> to comfort myself, yeah. <laughs> selfishly, like the whole world might just be an illusion. Like, the, like the, you know, the beauty of the ecosystem and all. I could just be in a brain in a vat or something in a simulation and all of this just feels beautiful and I'm given the right mood stabilizers for it to feel wonderful or something. Like there's a part of me that's just like my consciousness and what happens to it is the, the most important part here. That's what matters at the end of the day. And sure. the idea that it's going to be an infinity of nothingness, whatever, non-existence forever is, you know, in the right moods, the kind of thing that, I think should stir anybody into a sort of like existential terror. But anyway, I, I agree. I agree. Uh, it is terrifying. I, I don't want to dwell I have on this self-preservation instinct. And right. I guess I've, I've, I've tapped in. I've, I've, I've found wisdom in some like Eastern philosophies that encourage um, letting go of that sort of, yeah. you know, ego focused, uh, way of being which i think is kind of just comes naturally to us to have an ego-focused way of being um i don't i won't pretend to to have absolved myself of that um and again like what i'm telling you is kind of you know what i aspire to and when i when i feel best that's what i'm that's how i'm feeling and thinking Mm. um yeah yeah, no, I agree. And when I'm not thinking about it and just enjoying life and being ignorantly bliss, that's when I'm enjoying myself the most too. Yeah, yeah, that's great too. I love that. Um, but yeah, and I've heard, I don't know, maybe you're familiar with this phrase, meditation is preparation for death. Um, where it's like, in a sense, you're stilling your mind, you're removing your ego, you're basically doing everything that you would do when you're going to die anyway. Like, But now, while you're alive, so like, there's a part of it for me that it's like, God damn it, you're probably right. That probably is the thing I should be doing. But like, for God's sake, I got to be building spaceships. I want to be like creating new organisms. So there's things I got to do. I don't, I can't yeah. meditate, you know, like. Right, right, right. Anyway. Um, okay. So there was an idea that I came across from Nietzsche, which I thought was interesting. Like, I, I think if and this makes a sort of rational sense in the same way that we have a feeling of confidence that it is like nothingness forever after we die. We don't know, but I mean, we're in a fundamental state of unknowing. Um, I, I think it's, it's equally likely potentially that if the universe is infinite, then everything will repeat eventually. And what happens when we die is that we're just like an infinity of time basically passes. Everything our, will, why will everything repeat? If the universe is infinite. Yeah. Uh, that's like a physics-y assumption, I guess. Like if you have an infinite amount of space, then eventually, you know, there are only so many ways that atoms can rearrange themselves. If it's literally infinite, then they will eventually enough universes across or whatever, rearrange themselves into a scenario that's identical to the one that we're in in right now. I see your point, but then there's also, um, there's also the chaotic, like, differential equations like if you if you take like a um a chaotic system like never repeats right it um 
goes on forever in a different kind of infinitely without without ever repeating itself yeah yeah there was Um, that like which which has which has something to i think the way that this this like um uh dilemma is solved like the dilemma between well how can you go to infinity without recycling the same state i think that is kind of resolved by the fact that there's like an infinite um there's an infinite uh 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 potential subdivision between different parts of space. So even between zero and one, there's an, there's an infinite number. There's an, yeah. there's an infinite number. So you could, uh, sorry, infinite number of points. So you can, uh, in fact, take a trajectory that never, that never crosses itself to infinity. Um, so, and, and yeah, I, I remember there was like uh, a way to like in physic, or, you know, physically tell one way or the other. You could have, I don't know, there's a system with three spinning disks and they each have like a hole on it. And if you spin one at a ratio of the other, which is exactly pi, yeah. then the three will never, ever, ever realign the three wow. hole, whatever. There's some system like that. I'm not describing it perfectly. That's you cool. spin one at like a ratio of one to two to pi and the three holes will never, ever realign ever again perfectly. It in a yeah, and so then that would be another. We, we can't test that because we you know we can't make something spin at exactly pi. But if we could, then we could test it, and we could just see like, hey, they never realign. Yeah. Therefore, we live in the kind of universe that where there isn't repeats or whatever. Either way, like I, I I see the mathematics behind that, and I see that like it's possible, like just that you could we might be living in a universe where infinite amount of space and time doesn't mean repeat, but we also yeah. could. There's like it, in a sense that like. I don't know, or maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's like a really good reason to think that it's not possible. But anyway, Nietzsche had proposed this. And yes, okay, right. We and we got to grant thing. him. We got to grant him a bit of uh, slack because because <laughs> he's Nietzsche. He, he, didn't, he wasn't armed with all of the this science. So. That's true. That's true. Um, but anyway, his proposal was eternal recurrence, and it, to me, it has a similar sort of like rational um uh, confidence behind it like in the same way that i'm not confident about what will happen after it could be a simulation we could wake up and like you know it turns out that we just put ourselves to sleep five thousand years from now and like we wanted to relive our like high school and university experiences because that was kind of fun and then when we die here we just wake up in the spaceship and it's another simulation who knows there's a bunch of things that it could be um maybe i spend too much time thinking about it though uh, I've got like a probability distribution of a bunch of things. Like for me, it's like nothingness is a big chunk. Eternal recurrence seems like a rational kind of like opposite to that. And then like simulation or something. Um, hmm. But anyway. want, why, why do you, uh, why do you think you're preoccupied with it? Or do, sorry, I, I put that, I use that word. You didn't use that word. Are you in fact preoccupied with it? I probably am. Yeah. I think about it quite a bit. Um, and again, it comes down to, I think just temperament like you said, it, it has never really like bothered you that much. Like you think about it here and then, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't bother you. But like, it's not like I've chosen for my body and my brain's reaction to this, this knowledge to be that it bothers me or that I want to yeah. think about it or work it out. But it kind of, I just kind of do. I mean, it does, bo- it, it does bother me sometimes. Like hmm. I actually had this very interesting evening, uh, like last week where I got into my bed and I hadn't turned out my lights yet. And I, I read a little, a little bit and then something I read kind of prompted me to think about like my life. Um, and uh, I did the kind of back of the envelope calculation, like how many days, ah. how many more days are there in my life? Uh, and it was something like 20,000. 
um, it's like three it's like 400 days a year for 50 years is is 20,000 days yeah. um, and uh, I, I, I kind of like imagined the number 20,000 like can I picture that number <laughs> kind of like yeah. it's not so big that I can't like I kind of have to stretch a bit to picture it but I it's can't. not like a total total stretch not like if the right. number was 20 million right yeah 20 million is much harder and then like a quadrillion is like I don't know what that is that's the same as a trillion to me um but 20,000 like seemed like something I could hold in my mind and that gave me a very strange feeling I ended up going to bed late because I was just <laughs> like only by like 20 minutes <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> it's like but, two hours but, like I thought about that for like 20 minutes yeah yeah still that can feel like a lot um Okay, so um, yeah, climate change. And by the way, let's go until like maybe around seven-ish, if you're cool with that. Uh, uh, or do you have sure. a hard stop? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh, sorry. Are we in the same time zone? Like 40 minutes? No, I'm in Boston, so uh, it's 9.12 for me. Okay, okay, whatever. Until the next hour. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, climate change. So a negative emission technologies. That's something that you like are passionate about now. And it's not like correct me if I'm wrong, but like a core competency of yours, at least as your previous work has defined your core competency. Um, yeah, like it, I, it's clear why you're interested in that stuff um, based on you know everything that we've talked about until now. What's your what's your thesis? Like why, why that as the way to tackle climate change best? Well, so for, first of all, I, I, I wouldn't say that my um, that my background really set is uh, sets me up for for negative emissions technology or climate. Um, I would say it it doesn't particularly set me up <laughs> that well. Yeah, right. Um, my background is in biotechnology, and um, climate is climate. Um, and I, I also wouldn't necessarily say I'm passionate about negative emissions technologies, just because. I've discovered them so recently mm. that maybe I haven't, you know, realized that I'm drinking the Kool-Aid or something, but, uh, but yes, I, 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 with those caveats, I would say that I am, um, I, I, I do feel a, a sense of conviction that negative emissions technologies are very important for climate change. Um, I probably, we don't need to say why climate change is important. Um, but, uh, you know, climate change is something that is getting worse and will continue to get worse, um, for, for a while and we need to do our best to avert it. And, um, just based on, uh, just based on the forecasts that people make about what that process of, decarbonization and um, that process of decarbonization is going to look like and the climate models and everything. Um, it appears that, and this is like IPCC, the most common and, and the most common models predict that in order to avoid even like 
even outcomes like two degrees C warming, which is which is more than what we what we want. Paris Paris has the goal of 1.5, and even 1.5 is a lot. Um, is something we, we will feel acutely. Um, so even to avoid two degrees, we need to remove carbon from the atmosphere that we have already emitted. Um, and we need to be removing 10 gigatons of carbon from, uh, sorry, 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide um, from the atmosphere every year by around 2050. Um, and right now we're, we're removing almost zero gigatons. Um, and we are emitting uh, about 40 gigatons a year. Um, gigaton is a lot. It's a <laughs> bit hard to... It's a billion tons, right? It's a billion tons. Yeah, a billion tons of gas. Um, How many uh, gigatons is our atmosphere? Like, I thought our atmosphere would be maybe one gigaton, you know? Like, Jesus. No, I think it's... Let me Google this. Yeah, let's. <laughs> this, this is one I, I've Googled this before. Um, uh, how much does the atmosphere weigh? <laughs> A lot. <laughs> let's five, see. Quad, five quadrillion tons. Wow. <laughs> so we said earlier that a quadrillion is basically the same as a trillion, right? Yeah. Um, just be, because they're both so like unfathomably huge. That's right. But um, yeah, five quadrillion tons. So Which like a million times more? A million billion. The, yeah. So but a million times more than the amount of carbon we're emitting per year. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that, that really makes sense. That, that really makes sense when you think about it, because if the, if the total volume of the atmosphere is a million times more yeah. than the, than the carbon that we emit every year, that's why we're able to inter that's why we're able to increase the concentration of carbon by w about one part per million every yeah, that's year. Right. That's right. right. That's right. So it, it checks out. It checks out <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we've got to remove so, it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we need to remove we need to remove tens of, of gigatons of, of carbon dioxide a year by mid-century. And that is an industry that doesn't exist yet. Um, and it's, it's an effort that it's an industry that needs to exist on the scale of the fossil fuel industry. There are only a couple industries that operate at gigaton scale. One is the fossil fuel industry. Um, I think it's around four gigatons of oil that we, that we use every year. Um, how much oil don't quote me on that. We'll say oh, yeah. gigatons, gigatons of oil are used every year. Yep. I, um, uh, I feel confident in saying that. Uh, and also gigatons of concrete are produced every year. Um, I, don't, I don't know about steel and stuff. Plastic is like an order of magnitude less. Um, so this, this negative emissions industry needs to be at the scale of our biggest industries within 30 years, according to the people who, you know, think about this stuff. And I don't claim to understand truly how they make those predictions. Um, but that to me seems like a very important problem to work on field of technology to work on. 
And, um, but, you know, because it's neat, especially as an engineer, like as someone who's trained in technical work, um, just seems like something I should work on. Plus, it seems like there's lots of opportunity and will be probably a very interesting career because if, if I do end up working on negative emissions, because uh, I, will, I would hopefully get to witness the, the creation of an entire global industry uh, and try to participate in shaping that. Um, so, yeah, you, so that, 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 that's why I'm excited about it. Are you a fan of Elon Musk? Um, I wouldn't call myself a fan of Elon Musk. Right. But I don't hate it, hate Elon Musk either. <laughs> like I don't dread him. <laughs> a, a lot a, there seems to be a lot of Elon Musk hate. Yeah. I think he's very easy to hate and that's part of why he's such a good character. Mm. Uh, so, but like part of the reason that I ask is cuz he recently put out uh, an X prize for 50 million dollars yeah. for exactly this. Yeah. yeah, that's right. This divide yeah, 50 for the top prize. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And then they divide it up below that. But you're right. Sorry, 100 million altogether, and he's willing to do more if there seems promising. So yeah. like, I, 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 what, what is with the conflict? With it feels like Elon's goals align with your goals quite substantially, and it's a force in the right direction. I don't. I don't feel conflict with Elon Musk. You just said you didn't. You weren't a fan. No, I just said I'm not a fan, and I'm. But I'm also not a hater. <laughs> who are you a fan of i mean i would i would say i would say i yeah i would i would say i like elon musk for okay, sure there we go there elon we go. musk is cool i got you <laughs> quoted and like i think his goals are good yeah um okay I, like i i hope he succeeds at all his goals good okay because <laughs> if he does that'll be good it felt a little forced but okay well that's good no no i no, yeah yeah you like i just it. don't okay. want to say i'm a fan you know, because there are fans, I'm not a fan. You're not getting Dogecoin just because he tweeted about it. That's that's okay. correct. Correct. Okay. <laughs> I also don't follow him on Twitter. You don't follow. I, him. I'm not really on Twitter. So. No, I'm I'm really not either. Honestly, I see what, what happens on Twitter from the news. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So. Uh, one big question that I have on carbon removal and like, you're totally right. It's got to be an industry the size of the other industries. The reason carbon emission is so big is because it's so economically juicy. And so carbon sequestration has got to be juicy too, but no, it's not, it doesn't give us any kind of economic ability. It's not like we take out carbon from the atmosphere and we get something to run our cars or something like that. So maybe it has to be like the reason it would be incentivized is if the world came together and said for every, you know, ton of carbon you can remove from the atmosphere, the world government body, whatever, will pay you a certain amount for that, that we all agree on. And that creates the industry. So is it something like that that needs to happen or else there's no incentive. If Elon can't afford you know, the whatever trillion dollars that it would take to subsidize all of it. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a great question. And that's kind of, as far as I can tell, one of the very important questions in the field uh, as people are thinking about how to actually create the industry yeah, and how to fund companies and how to make business plans and things like that. Um, uh so I've heard a couple different um, views. So the, the, the view I've encountered the most when I talk to, you know, people in VC who are looking to fund companies or 
when I talk to, you know, people who are trying to start companies, the way they're thinking about it, typically it's, the idea is you need to make a product. You need to make something that you can sell mm-hmm. on the market that's carbon negative. Yeah. Um, and some options for that are a very appealing option would be carbon negative concrete, because like I said, co- concrete is at the gigaton scale. Carbon negative fuel would be cool, um, which is a bit, bit tricky. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just a bit. Th- 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 there is a company called Planetary Hydrogen that wants to make hydrogen fuel while sequestering carbon. I don't fully understand their technology, so I can't comment on the feasibility mm. of it, but it's, it's, it's a cool idea. It's a Canadian mm. company too. Um, Very cool. Uh, and, you know, there, there, there are ways that you can like improve agricultural output while um, sequestering more carbon in soil. Um, so there are things that you can do that potentially are beneficial. Another interesting, so an, actually one, one very interesting thing is that, you know, the, uh, the, the chemical reaction of carbon dioxide with silicate minerals in the crust of the earth, uh, is an exothermic process, meaning like it happens thermodynamically favorably and it generates heat when it happens. Um, so like, this is the formation of carbonates, uh, which is like a solid mineral form of carbon dioxide. It's the most stable, I, I'm maybe diamonds or something like some other form of carbon is more stable actually, but like, we'll put it this way. Carbonates are a more stable form of carbon than CO2. Um, and so you actually, you can, if kind you can think of it as like burning CO2 with, rocks to produce carbonate and you get energy out Mm. so if you could find it it, it's it's a very slow reaction but if you can find a way to make that reaction go fast enough you could actually generate energy by doing that and then we would just have to mine the silicates you have to mine the silicates yeah and you have to um yeah so actually that's that's a kind of back of the envelope that would have to be would have to be done um which i haven't done i should do that <laughs> you don't have to be so thorough. Like you, it's okay to <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um but uh anyway, so 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 th- th- those are those are some possibilities. Um but what I tend to think is that at some point you are going to uh whatever you whatever market you are serving with your product um, that is carbon negative with your carbon negative product, you're going to saturate that market before you've sequestered enough carbon. So like if I tell you, you know, every time I sell you plastic, one of the world's largest commodities, I'm going to sequester a gigaton of, or I'm going to sequester a ton of plastic for every, pardon me, I'm going to sequester a ton of carbon dioxide for every ton of plastic I sell you. That sounds great. But I would, I would produce all the world's plastic and I would only sequester a uh, half a gigaton of CO2, which is 
which is 1% of what we need to be sequestering annually. Um, so, uh, and that, that's true for basically every market. Um, so maybe you turn the whole economy into every, every single thing you make is carbon negative. Maybe mm. then you reach gigaton, but that's like uh, uh, 10 gigatons, but that's, that's like a bit optimistic. So I tend to think that the service, sh ultimately the service is going to be pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And I had a, I had a really, uh, 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 enlightening conversation with uh, someone named Klaus Lackner, who is uh, a, uh, um, a parent of the field, uh, of the carbon removal field. Huh. His take is that, so during, it, it was so beautiful the way he said it, so I'll just try to repeat what he said. Um, he said. He said, while we were talking, someone came by my house uh, and took my trash and put it in a truck and, and took it out to the landfill. And I don't expect that person to come back and give me something in exchange for the trash. They are giving me the service of taking away my trash. It's a service. It's waste management. Similarly, when I flush the toilet, I don't, ask for something in return. That is a service. It's waste management. And carbon dioxide removal in, in, in his, his view will eventually be recognized as waste management. And at that point, our perspective on it will, will shift. And he, he made this analogy that I thought was really beautiful to, um, the origins of the sewage system. Now I'm, I'm, uh, I, 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 I'm telling this story based on my memory of his version <laughs> of the origins of the sewage system. So uh, at, at worst, this might just be a parable, uh, okay. but uh, I, I think this is at least somewhat true how it went. Uh, people used to just like dump their sewage in the street. I've heard that. And it was smelly. And they didn't like the smell, but they were like, well, that's life. You, it's smelly. We deal with it. But then eventually they realized that um, management of poop was related to cholera. And so you, you would have more cholera sickness if you just put your poop in the street and have it like all around versus if you clean it up and take it away. You clean it up and take it away you don't have this problem with cholera and once people realize that then they their, their kind of perception of it changed and they considered it valuable to take away the poop and in our world it's unfathomable to imagine that you would not consider it valuable to have someone come and take away your poop or to have someone come and take away your trash from the side of the road we pay for that willingly you know, I'm glad that my taxes go to fund waste management, picking up my trash and taking it to the landfill. So if, if Klaus Lackner is right, in the future, uh, we will just be removing carbon dioxide and maintaining a homeostasis uh, of gases in our atmosphere as part of waste management.
and I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that view. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the question still remains like, what is the actual path to implementing carbon removal on the time scale that's necessary? Um, because we may only realize that uh, carbon dioxide removal is a valuable waste management service once we've reached a point that we don't want to reach. Um, and so for someone, for, for, for anyone who wants to build a company around carbon sequestration, it's kind of an open question as to whether you should focus on like disrupting a market uh, while removing carbon or whether you should just focus on removing carbon as cheaply as possible. Um, but yeah, perhaps my naive intuition as someone just coming from academia and not having experience in industry is that the, the most important thing is just pulling carbon out as cheaply as possible. Because in the end, if you have that method, then maybe you'll win or then you would win. Um, so. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. Are, are you hopeful? There's a part of me that is like pessimistic about our ability to take action on this. There's a number of reasons and like psychologists look at it, but like we've known about climate change in a serious way for like the last 50 years, basically. And every 10 years or so, there's a serious conference and like another, <laughs> you know, we, in the early 2000s, we had uh, the guy who did not win as president, uh, Al Gore, you know, we had a whole thing. I remember watching that movie and thinking like, damn, I've got to make my life about this. Like, I don't care yeah. about anything else. We've got to do something. And like, so do you, do you feel that sense of, of pessimism as well? Or like, there's a part of it for me that feels kind of like we're going to adapt. We're not going to be successful in doing something about it, in getting our act together and having a good carbon tax and having good waste management. It's just going to be too late. It kind of already is. Um, there, we've already crossed the number of tipping point thresholds. Like I hear it every year. It's like, this is the last year that we've got to reverse our, our, our act. Or something. Like I hear this every five years and like, yeah, yeah. Eventually, anyway, so there's a part of me that just feels like adaptation is the way to go. We got to suck it up and like, that's what's going to, that's what it's ultimately actually going to be 50 years from now. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think ad adaptation is very important and we should, we should do our best to plan for, um, you know, rising sea levels, yeah. mass, mass immigration, um, expanded uh expanded uh territories for uh infectious diseases um every everything else um uh, like hurricanes more severe more severe of course yeah more severe weather of course yeah. uh all of that you know uh, food shortages because land because you can't as weather is more extreme you can't grow food all that stuff uh i fully expect to happen um, and I do think we should prepare for it. And, and adaptation is like a very, very important part of, uh, of, uh, dealing with climate change, but, um, we should also try to, uh, I, I think the goal should, I, I, I do have, I do have, I guess I'll say faith that, uh, <laughs> or <laughs> some kind of confidence that basically boils down to faith that, or that's not quite faith. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable, it's an optimistic confidence that we will at some point 
be able to have the earth be good and nice and not have climate change be a problem. Um, maybe that will take a really long time and there will have to be like a whole like era of crappiness yeah. um, between now and then. And maybe there's like mass extinction and like this kind of like might suck in a lot of ways. But um, I do think we'll reach that. And I think it's really important to remember that like climate change is not binary. It's not like, do we have climate change or do we avert climate change? And then, you know, every year we say, this is our last year to avert climate change. And then, oops, oops, instead we just emitted more and did more bad things and cut down more trees and all the bad things we did it more. Um, So the the, the response to that isn't to say, oh, well, I guess it's climate change. We're fucked. Right. Um, uh, the, the response is just to try to make climate change as as not bad as we can make it right. um, because and try to have fewer species go extinct and try to have fewer people lose their livelihoods and have fewer people be hungry and have less infectious disease, you know, and have less ecosystem disruption uh, as, as best we can. Uh, until eventually we reach this point, which will probably be far beyond my lifetime, uh, where we are able to come to a, a place of homeostasis where with our, uh, with the natural ecosystem, with, with the, where the ecosystems as a whole, including humanity, which is part of the earth ecosystem, where the ecosystems can reach a homeostasis, right? Uh, we just have to work toward that. And like, as much as it sucks that we, we, we should never give up because it's just not a binary thing. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's a good answer. Actually. Less. Yeah. That is a good answer. At one point I got um, the opportunity to ask the CTO, one of the co-founders of Tesla at a conference, the, basically this question, it's like, isn't it kind of a little too little too late? Like we've already crossed, crossed a bunch of tipping points. Like the introduction of electric vehicles is happening really slowly. Like have we really, is it really mission success? And like 20 years from now, if it's like 10% are electric vehicles, this doesn't feel like success. And he said, basically that. So I, you know, you're aligning with, uh, with the the Elon people as well. Um, Okay. (laughs) Interesting. Like, so I, I feel like you've got a good sense of purpose right now because we have a nice cataclysmic type existential problem that's affecting the world and nature um and 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 like it's 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 kind of nice in a sense that we have this issue because it gives us a sense of like a clear sense of purpose it's like right right i've thought about that before Yeah, yeah right and so okay if you know we're in the hypothetical world where you know let's say for some reason, 10 years from now, somebody, you know, we discover like a bunch of really good things happen. We discover fusion, you know, we have really good carbon sequestration. We get a bunch of silica mines, you know, we just like solve it. We're like, damn, we got this. Uh, And like a bunch of people came out of poverty. Like suddenly we just like, let's give it 15 years. Like imagine we just had the most incredible trajectory. We no longer have inequality of opportunity across the world. This is like really quite fantastic, but just go with me. Yeah, yeah, I, I see where you're going. Yeah. What do we do next? What What is like our purpose then? What What do you think you would like be driven to do? What would I be driven to do? Uh, um, this is such a good question. I love this question um, because I've, I've I've had this thought to myself before about how I I sort of feel inclined to like devote myself to something, 
and finding something like climate change is like a very satisfying way to say, look, I've devoted myself to the right thing. The right thing to do is devote myself. And so um, that's what I'm doing. Right. Um, uh, But in absence of like some sort of like ethical imperative to work really hard on a particular problem, um, what would I want to do? I like working, so I would want to work on things. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there would be problems to deal with that I would want to work on, but um, uh, I mean, I guess I would I would sort of do this what what? Can you repeat the question? (laughs) So what, what would you do? Like, what would your next, what would the, like, yeah. What would you set your purpose as? What would your next big project be? Yeah, it would be the same. It would be love. It would be love for life. Mm. So it would be whatever it would be, whatever is the best way to, I would just try to love living things and, you know, my fellow humans, my fellow other 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 life forms try to you know um try to live a a life of love which just seems like the nicest most pleasant fun fulfilling way to live um which i i you know i argued earlier is is uh what has kind of what i try to use as a guiding force and what i at least used to justify, but my, my devotion to climate change, but I will, um, I'll try to say that it is also guided that choice, um, for real. Uh, yeah, I would just, I would try to pursue that. Have you have a nice time? I mean, I I think have a nice time with everybody trying to try to try to help everyone have a good time. It feels, (laughs) I have to say the like dirty part of my mind is tiptoeing around. Like, are we talking about orgasms here? Like sex dungeons? Like how much love are we talking about? Um, Well, I didn't mean love in a sexual way, but sex sex is good. Lots of orgasms are good. We don't have to wait till climate change is solved to have orgasms either. (laughs) We can have those every day. (laughs) Um, Have you fallen in love? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've fallen in love for sure. Are you currently in a state of having fallen in love? I am not in a state of, uh, I am not in love with someone right now in the kind of way that you would, I mean, there are people that I've loved. There's one person in particular I can think of. And, uh, who, who, who I don't, I mean, there, there are, other people who I love and I currently do love who are not like romantic love. Um, but there will always be something in me that kind of loves that person. Hmm. Um, but I wouldn't say that I'm like in love right now in, 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 you know, in the way that you probably mean. Yeah. Yeah. In the romantic kind of sense. Um, like, would you say that the way you have felt love in a romantic sense has been more dramatic and, and in a, a a weird sort of way, like meaningful and and deep than the way that you have felt love potentially like, you know, the way we'd say platonically with, you know, friends and comrades. You're asking me if, if the love of the romantic love that I've felt, has that been stronger than my feeling, than my love of friends? Yeah. 
Um, it has certainly been over more overwhelming experientially. Right. Um, like the, the feeling of it has been stronger in terms of like strength of feeling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. In the moment, the way it affects you. Yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. Um, and that's like, I think a pretty natural thing. That's like, there's the, the hormones that help me feel that, um, are just, there's more hormones helping me feel that than there are hormones helping me love my friend and feel like an ecstatic, uh, you know, intense feeling of love. But, um, I have, um, some friends, I mean, I, yeah, there, there are people who I love very deeply who, uh, I, I, I would say, on the same yeah similar interesting interesting similar level of love um i forget his name gabe newell uh he was talking about bcis recently brain computer interfaces and the power that they might have beyond just creating virtual reality type experiences potentially mood modifying experiences mm-hmm. so you know you can literally just dial the feel of what a thing is um, if you have that kind of access to what your neurons are doing in your brain and so you know, the same kind of dramaticness and like, if, if love is the goal and dialing that up is, you know, meaningful and uh, good. And, you know, the kind of like thing that we would want to do after we've solved a lot of our problems are, are, are to feel that more and, and, and be immersed in that. Can you see yourself, you know, dialing up the kind of like feel of love for more people and friends and like, you know, like the hormones are helping you in romantic love. Why not dial it up for all kinds of love? Uh, yeah. I mean, if, if you can, if you can feel love more, that sounds very good, particularly if it results in, I mean, of course, because it's pleasurable, feeling mm. love more would be great. Yeah. Um, uh, I would say that when I, when I, when I, when, you know, when I, when I think about trying to be motivated in my action by love, um, I'm not thinking about love as a feeling. I'm thinking of it more as a disposition and an action. Hmm. Um, so, you know, when I said that um, the romantic love that I've felt has been like, extra strong in a feeling experiential sort of way. I was kind of, I was like referring to feelings there, but Mm. that isn't really what I mean by love. Um, So I think, you know, if you accept, if you accept that, you know, uh, the premise that acting in love and being motivated by love is good. It's a good, good way to uh, structure your life then like any way that any, any method that helps you do that, I would say is good. And if like, you know, in the future of brain machine interfaces help us with that, or if like some kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, biotechnology or something like, like that way of interfacing with our bodies helps us with that, you know, that seems good to me. But I would also say that um, if, if that's really our goal, if that's the goal behind like building brain machine interfaces or whatever, we should also um, devote time to just cultivating that in ourselves without using these technologies that don't exist yet, because there are methods that you can 
use ways of living and just ways of spending your time, ways of directing your attention um, that can help you cultivate that. And uh, you don't need a brain machine interface for that. So um, I would say, you know, maybe in the future we'll have both. We'll, we'll, we'll be able to cultivate that inside ourselves through, you know, you, through our relationship with ourself and reflection and um, all that. Plus the brain machine interface can help us, but um, I'm more excited about cultivating it in, in myself than I am about brain machine interfaces doing it for me. Yeah. That, that seems um, to make like, a lot of sense. It's, it, it's like <laughs> there is this app. So I was thinking, uh, you know, sometimes apps distract me. I don't know about you. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh yeah. Like even, even like, uh, not just, not just Instagram and, and, uh, uh, stuff like that, but like even Slack and like email, like is fragments my attention. So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get an app that silences my other apps <laughs> for like a set period of time so that I can just work. Mm-hmm. Then I like, couldn't figure out how to get it to work the way I wanted. So I was like, okay, hey, whatever. I'm just going to like set, set windows of time for myself. Like you know, for these 40 minutes, I'm going to no emails, no Slack, like whatever. I'm just going to focus on something. And after I'll do my emails and Slack. And, uh, I forgot about this app, but then this fucking app sends me emails <laughs> to try to get me to use the app. <laughs> and I unsubscribed and then it sent me another email after I unsubscribed. And like, <laughs> so in a, in a, like, there's some irony there, of course, like turning to the phone to help me turning to the app to help me not, not be distracted by apps is like, you know, instead I should just like focus on developing a method in myself to control my attention and, um, you know, choose how I do things. So that's kind of, you know, how I see this brain machine interface thing. At the same time, I love technology. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a bit of a te- techno optimist, I would say. Not as, not fully, not as much as some of what you get around MIT and stuff. Um, but uh, so, it, of course, there's a place for these things. But, uh, you know, before we build a technology to solve a problem, we should ask if we like can solve the problem already. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. And I feel like I would want both together, basically what you were saying. It could be that the brain machine interface helps with the first steps. It shows you a little bit of the way it's holding your hand a bit, but the point is to get you to be self-sustaining. It's going to help you get there, not be the crutch that just does the thing for you. Um, Okay. And then as the final kind of like line of reasoning here, as we're uh, nearing the end, um, I would say like, I kind of just want to like, see what you think of this as a proposal for what somebody could do in that situation that I described, where we've solved climate change, we've solved opportunity cost. What do we do now? What's the project? Mm-hmm. I like your project and it, and it makes like a sort of fundamental kind of sense. Um, but I'm also left like in, in a state of desiring as it relates to like the answers to the big questions. Yeah. And a fundamental premise for me is kind of like, we're in this like, 
yeah, mysterious world. We don't have a lot of the answers. So to me, it's like, let's find out more answers. And a part of it though, is that we're not intelligent enough potentially. So there's like entirely new kinds of phenomena that happen when you get more intelligent. Dogs just don't experience things that we get to experience. And like monkeys experience things dogs don't. And like you keep going. Yeah. And plants don't experience what dogs experience. Maybe they experience a different thing, but yeah. And like entirely new kinds of phenomena pop up that like might, like couldn't even imagine at the dog stage. Right. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's like the most fundamentally interesting kind of project that we could pursue next. Um, potentially questions like why is there something rather than nothing, which to me is like the fundamental question. Yeah. There could have just been nothing ever. And that's mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. It, it feels more likely anyway. There's a certain sense that I get that it doesn't make sense to us at a fundamental level, or like we can't parse it in a, in a, in a way, like we don't quite have the tools yet to even frame it properly or something. And so if we were to become more intelligent, like 10 times more intelligent, a hundred times more intelligent, that could unlock brand new categories of even just ways of asking the big questions, which to me is so compelling. Like that yeah. concept is just incredibly compelling. Um, so anyway, that would be my answer. Does that appeal to you? Would that project be like, yeah, I'm going to love, but also, you know, work on that project. Yeah. I mean, totally. I would absolutely work on that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I think, um, you know, I, I know it, it does sound a bit hippy dippy to say like, Hey, I'm going to try to root everything in love, you know? <laughs> um, but I, I, I really believe I, I find it a fruitful way of thinking, but it, it requires like a pretty like, uh, uh, flexible and, and, uh, way of thinking about what love is. Right. And so the, this, this, per, the pursuit of these questions can be an act of love as well. Like, uh, curiosity um curiosity is such a wonderful thing and one of my favorite qualities of of humans and, and other animals is curiosity uh and so when you encounter this world and you are moved by it to ask these questions um you know that is like a pursuit of understanding and, 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 and beauty that like, I totally get behind. I mean, that's, that's one of my favorite things is asking questions and philosophizing and, you know, trying to, trying to understand what's going on. So yeah, absolutely. And, and I think also like creating new forms of life, like new kinds of intelligence, um, uh, um, which, yeah, new, new, new kinds of intelligence that can interact in new ways with the world sounds like a, a beautiful endeavor that I think is very worthwhile. Um, yeah. Nice. And, I, and, I, and, you know, and I, and I think we should, we should, we should work on that stuff now too. Um, like, nice. uh, there is all this concern about AI and we should like take that seriously, but, um, and maybe like, you know, ask ourselves, if we're not sure what we're creating is good, then like, should we be creating it? If you're, if your curiosity, your drive to, to create life exceeds some kind of, um, 
exceeds some kind of more fundamental sensibility, then you get with like, you end up with some kind of Frankenstein thing, right? Like that's the whole, that's the whole um, myth of Frankenstein is, is that the, the drive to create a thing exceeds your, Hmm. your, 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 your deeper, deeper sensibilities of what is good. And you become this like agent of agent of uh, creation that is like destructive creation. Right. So probably we want to avoid that just by making sure that we're, we know we, that we, we stay in touch with what's guiding us and like, you know, try to try to keep aspects of our, um, our nature in check. But yeah. I'm so glad you're aligned with that. And then for me, I, I think the one final add on there, and I love that you even said we should work on that now too. It's not like literally everybody can work on, you know, climate change. However, we can work on both at the same time. Right. Right. Um, and then for me, I guess part of it is that like, I'm not confident that within our like original lifespans, like 80 years, we'll get there. We'll get to like the point of like real kind of like breakthrough kind of intelligence. So it's almost like the precursor to that. If we want that one, the precursor is longevity. The precursor is like, let's live long enough that we get to like participate in these long-term projects, like hundred year projects that like will lead to that kind of outcome. And that whole thing then is tantalizing. It's like, all right, you know, even you, you said earlier, like you think there's a chance that within our lifetimes we could extend our lifespan. And that would be the key that would get us to the intelligence thing. And then that would be like, that's the pinnacle. So it's funny. I I think you potentially open a Pandora's box with extending lifespan, but like then, you know, bad ideas don't die. Yeah. You know, like, um, those things could be concerning, but, yeah. uh, so I, I'm not completely convinced that like solving death is like really the best thing, uh-huh. but it could be cool. And if we solve death, I would definitely hop on board. <laughs> but, yeah. You feel a little guilty about it. You know, like your ideas. Maybe, should I don't know. It's just, it's what people are doing. So <laughs> I have the option. <laughs> Only if the cool people do it. Um, uh, yeah, the, um, I think, the old ideas and a lot of the kind of like presumptions would be like, I think we would live as young people. Like, I don't think we would live as old people with stubborn minds. I think eventually we would just be like, I want a young mind that adopts the new ideas too. And like, I, I hope think, so. I mean that, yeah, it isn't clear that that's human nature. Right. But. Especially if we break something as fundamental as our normal life cycle, I think we could have 150 year olds with the like, you know, uh, agile mindset of a 25 or a 35 year old. Right. Potentially. I, I hope so. I mean, maybe we would understand what, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm open to these questions. There's such big questions and so yeah. far from uh, being understood that, yeah, I, I, I have no definitive answer to what I think it would be like if we were able to extend our lifespan and live forever but or live, me, just even live to a 200 or something. It does make me very happy that you're at least open-minded to it. So I might, I might tap back into you at some point in the future when I have another longevity initiative or something and I need your advice, whatever, you'll, you'll gladly, oh, yeah, yeah, gladly help. Good keep the conversation going. Cool. All right. Well, we're coming up against the hour. This was so fun. I appreciate your time. Very Uh, much appreciate you inviting me to have this conversation. This was great. Okay. Um, We'll connect more and I will show you the recording after you can give it the AOK or not. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. I've recorded like 16 of these and I've done literally nothing with them, but eventually the conversations are the fun part probably. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All right, man. Peace. See ya. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.